We are thinking this morning about money again. We're doing, spending two weeks thinking about money. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, which is the longest section of teaching on giving in the New Testament. And uh, last week I was thinking, talking about how, to, how we should think about money in a time of financial pressure and looking at how we need to believe God and be generous. And this week, particularly, I want to think around the theme of remembering the poor, remembering the poor. And this is something which has always characterized the Christian church, a care for the poor. We see that right at the beginning of the church's story, that the church was born in the context of the Roman Empire, which was a, a society in which there was incredible inequality, a very few very wealthy people at the top, and then a mass of people lived in a kind of poverty which would be hard for us to imagine, and a huge part of the proportion were slaves. And so uh, incredible inequality, great poverty for many people. And, and the first Christians were largely from humble backgrounds, not many wealthy amongst them. But we see that first church thriving and flourishing. And part of that was because of the generosity within the church. So you read the story of the first church in Acts chapter 2. Immediately, one of the first actions of the church is a, a, a caring for one another. Those who are richer help provide for those who are poorer. And that pattern of provision for the poor continues in the story of the church. Get to the third century, and the church in Rome at that point was caring for 1,500 widows. A really significant number of poor widows being cared for with a huge financial investment. Fast forward to the medieval period, we see a, a sudden the, the creation of the first hospitals and schools, and that was out of a Christian desire to care for the poor, that there should be care for the sick and education for the poor. And we, see, we can see that even in the architecture in our society of, of the buildings, which are the legacy of that. Fast forward another couple of hundred years to the Reformation, the 17th century, and one of the things that John Calvin particularly emphasized in his ministry was recognizing the role of deacons. And uh, we do have deacons here at Gateway, although it's a role that's got a little bit obscured the last few years with all that's gone on. We're planning in the new year to, again, talk about and recognize those who serve amongst deacons. And, and, and one of the things that the Reformation uh, clarified was the role of deacons was particularly to serve those who were sick and who were poor. That was a real focus of the church then. Fast forward another hundred years or so to the evangelical awakening of the 18th and 19th century. An incredible move of God in the UK and America where vast numbers of people came to faith and there are very practical outworkings of that in terms of care for the poor. It was that shift, that, that mass conversion which led to lots of pressure to change the appalling working conditions in the mines and factories. It was that evangelical awakening which led to the campaign to abolish slavery. There was a real concern for the poor. And then in our own era, 20th century and 21st century, there have been incredible resources poured out from churches to serve the poor locally and globally. And uh, we see that in our own context. See that in terms of how we try and live as a church ourselves, what we do with our finances. See it in something like the current crisis in Ukraine that the group of churches we're, we're part of have collectively given over one and a half million pounds to help those who lost homes and so on in, in Ukraine. Or think of an organization like FaithWorks here in BCP, Christian organization supported by many of the churches in BCP. Richard's part of the, uh, the board as a trustee of that organization and really has such an important role in our town in providing for those who are poor. This is what the church always does. Remembering the poor is central to the gospel. In the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul describes the time he went to Jerusalem to visit the Apostles Peter and James and John to check that what he was teaching about Jesus was right. And it says in Galatians 2 verse 10, All they asked 
was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is what Peter and James and John said to the Apostle Paul and what the Apostle Paul says he was eager to do himself. Remember the poor. And we can see from all this that any church which doesn't have a concern for the poor is really failing to be a church. That remembering the poor, concern for the poor, is absolutely central to the church's mission. And and poverty takes all kinds of different forms. There's poverty first in terms of relationship with God. If you don't know God, then you're spiritually poor. There's a personal poverty you can have in terms of how you perceive yourself. You can be poor in your own emotion and emotional health. There can be an interrelational poverty in terms of how you connect with other people and all that kind of thing. This morning, we're particularly focusing on material poverty. And these passages, these chapters in 2 Corinthians, which we're basing this teaching around, are particularly interesting about in this regard, because the purpose of what Paul is writing to the Corinthians in these two chapters is that he wants them to be part of an offering which is going to bless the poor believers in Jerusalem. The the church in Jerusalem is going through a really hard time, and the Apostle Paul wants to take a gift from the churches he works with to the believers in Jerusalem to help them. And look at how this encouragement to give, how this teaching starts. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they pleaded, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people." The Macedonian churches are this example of extreme poverty welling up in rich generosity out of overflowing joy. And we read about the Macedonian churches in Acts chapter 16. Um, Acts 16 verse 9 describes a moment when in the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Up to this point, the Christian church started in Jerusalem started to spread, largely because of persecution. The believers left Jerusalem and started to scatter around the Mediterranean region. But up to this point, the Christian church had been uh, limited just to Asia. Uh, There had been a little push into Ethiopia. There had been that encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian official. He'd gone back with the good news of the gospel to Ethiopia. But the, the gospel was essentially Asian and African. The church was Asian and African. And this moment when the Apostle Paul has this vision of a man in Macedonia asking for help is when the church leapfrogs into Europe as well. And in response to this vision, Paul and his friends get on a boat, sail across the sea, and end up in a town called Philippi. There, Paul meets a woman called Lydia, and she becomes the first convert to Christianity in the continent of Europe, which is quite a badge of honor to be able to carry. It would be amazing to talk to Lydia in glory about her being the first believer in this continent. And Paul starts the church there in Philippi and then also in the Macedonian towns of Thessalonica and Berea. And these Christians in Macedonia, they feel a debt of gratitude to the Apostle Paul who has brought the good news of Jesus to them, to Jesus, who they have now met and had their lives transformed by, and back to the church in Jerusalem without which there would be no church at all. And this Church have been, these Macedonians have been the beneficiaries of this amazing gospel advance which has started in Jerusalem. 
And as they had responded to the gospel, they had a particular reputation for joyful faith even in hard times. And so when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he says this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia is the province where the city of Corinth was situated. These Christians experienced real suffering, but also knew incredible joy from the Holy Spirit. And that might seem to be contradictory, but actually so often is the Christian experience. Christian experience is a mixture of suffering and joy. And... Um, these Macedonians were poor, and yet they were full of joy. They were particularly characterized by joyfulness. And there's something in, there's a challenge for us in that to hear, to see the model. That's what Paul says, you've become a model, a model of joyfulness in the middle of suffering. And uh, certainly I've had the privilege in other parts of the world of sitting with people who materially are incredibly poor, certain by our standards, but nonetheless are full of joy in the Lord. Think of my, some of my friends in Nepal and other parts of the world I've been able to visit who are like that, incredibly poor materially, but also incredibly full of joy in the Holy Spirit and also outstandingly generous, even though they seem to have nothing to be generous with. And so what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians is, well, look at these Macedonians. They're poor, they're, they're poorer than you, and yet look how generous they are. Now, I explained last Sunday, those of you who are here, that the word translated generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Greek word is normally translated as simplicity. And so what we can see the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians is, look at these Macedonians. They've got a simple, straightforward faith. Yeah, they're in a position of real difficulty, and yet their hands are open. They're being generous. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of giving to the Lord's people. So... What can we learn from this? One thing to learn is, that, is about generosity, even in the midst of poverty. The, the Macedonians were keeping things simple. They were not acting so much in terms of how their financial status appeared to be, but much more on the basis of their faith in God and who he is and what that meant for them. They clearly believed what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now clearly the Macedonians believed that. Even though they were poor, they still gave generous, generously because they believed that God would, would supply for them all that they needed. Now if you're rich, it's easy to be generous. Elon Musk could give away millions of pounds and wouldn't even notice. But if you're dirt poor, as these Macedonians were, and you're still generous, well, that's impressive. That's different. And the Apostle Paul says that their poverty was extreme. And you can't even imagine, really, what extreme poverty looked like in the context of a world in the first century where everybody was grindingly poor compared with what we know. In that context, they were extremely poor. And yet, from that place of poverty, they were generous. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody about this between services, and sometimes I wish I could just, we could just teleport our service to a developing world context, go and see some of our friends in Nepal or in a township in South Africa or somewhere else, and, and see what real poverty looks like, and to see the faithful, joyful generosity of our Christian brothers and sisters. We... we so, can be so blinded to reality because of our context. 
These Macedonians were in a place of incredible poverty, but they still wanted to help others who were suffering. And there is something shocking about that. Because if you are suffering financially, if you're extremely poor, surely you want to hold on to what you've got, not freely give it on to others. And there's something incredibly beautiful about this as well, that they had this overflowing joy that despite their poverty, they wanted to bless and give to the poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And we also see this as actually empowering because they didn't allow their material condition to define them. There's, there's no sense that these Macedonian believers had a victim mentality. They knew what their true status was. They knew what their identity was. They knew that they had met Christ. He had changed their lives. They were overflowing with joy in the Holy Spirit. As a consequence, they wanted to bless their brothers and sisters in Christ who were also in need. They knew who God was, meant they knew who they were, and that had amazing practical impact. Extraordinary. Another thing we can learn from this is about not having a poverty mentality. Now, we don't experience the extreme poverty that the Macedonians did, but we can slip into a poverty mentality. And a poverty mentality is when we look at everything from a perspective of lack, where every practical need we look at and think, we can't really afford that, whatever it might be. And churches are especially prone to slipping into a poverty mentality. And this tends to get wrapped up in what appears to be positive, things which are positive. So good stewardship, wise stewardship, financial resources is essential. Really important value for us here at Gateway. And uh, thriftiness is good. Thriftiness is a good virtue. But churches especially can take those good virtues, those good values of of stewardship and thriftiness, and they can become corrupted into actually what are bad attitudes of stinginess and shabbiness. And this quickly becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because a poverty mindset tends to produce poverty. If you look at everything from a perspective of lack, you tend up end up to be in a position of lack. Generosity has a habit of resulting in abundance. And what happens in churches with a poverty mentality is that the, the buildings gradually crumble into the ground and the staff are underpaid and ministries are under-resourced and the poor in the end aren't served because there's no resources to serve the poor. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and that mustn't happen here. We've got to fight a poverty mentality and especially at this season in the, our nation's economic cycle, it's very easy for us to fall into a poverty mentality. We mustn't. We've got to res- actively resist it means that we need to be guilt-free about enjoying the good things that God gives us. Guilt-free about spending some money on good stuff. My friend Rigby Wallace, who was here preaching a few weeks back, Rigby from Cape Town, he is very good at enjoying the good things of life. And I've had some good moments with Rigby. I've had a few moments of sitting in South African vineyards, drinking a nice glass of wine, looking at an amazing view. And Rigby will suddenly say, this is all my father's. It's all my father's. And it's a different mindset from a poverty mindset, a poverty mentality. It's recognizing the good things which our good Father gives to us and not being guilty about enjoying them. We're to be free to enjoy the good things that God gives us. Why? Because he's our Father and it's all his. It's all his. So we need to have a generosity mindset. As Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. 
You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. It's an amazing promise. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be careless. No, we still need to be good stewards. It doesn't mean we should be extravagant. No, thriftiness is good. It doesn't mean that you should expect to live on champagne and caviar. No, beans on toast is fine. But God is able to supply and increase your store of seed and enlarge the harvests of our righteousness. Generosity on every occasion. On every occasion. Now, may that be our experience. Let's put that into practice. Let's actively seek to be generous on every occasion. Aim to be the person who picks up the tab. Be generous tipping a waiter. Last year, our theme was generosity, and we were collecting stories about this. It was a good thing to push into. Let's, let's make this our experience. Let's, get, let's, let's be like the Macedonians, that the material state of things isn't the thing which defines us first, but who God is, who our Father is, and what that means for us. That would be true of us here at Gateway. But how then should we think about those who are materially poor and how we approach the very complex issue of poverty? It is a massively complex subject, um, very difficult to wrestle with. And we can see all kinds of examples over the last decades where actually throwing money at things isn't always just the answer. That's not what we're talking about. We can see plenty of examples where throwing money at poverty has actually made poverty worse. It's not just about throwing money at things. But here's a a scripture that has helped me. Deuteronomy 15. The Lord speaking through Moses to his people as they come into the promised land and says, At the end of every seven years you must cancel debts. However, there need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin." Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Now, we need to be alert to the context of this scripture. This was an instruction that God gave to Moses as his people were entering the promised land. It was to that people, that place, that time. We can't take this teaching and just kind of superimpose it upon 21st century Western financial systems. But there are some principles that we can learn from this instruction, the first of which is that we need to fight debt. Now, what the Lord says to his people in this teaching is that every seven years, debts are to be cancelled. That's, that's not if you take a debt now, in seven years it's going to be paid off, but there was a seven-year, every seven years. So regardless of when you took out your loan, the date was hit, the debt was paid. And, of course, the thing that would do, you think about that in our context, that would immediately stop the money supply because who is going to make a loan six months before all loans just get cancelled? You wouldn't do it, which is why God says... Don't do that. If somebody's in need, still lend it to them, even if you're close to that seven-year deadline. If you don't, it's going to be sin. You need to be generous, not stingy. Even if you might not get repaid what you loan, you've still got to be generous. That's, 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 
That's the point. Now, imagine if in our context, all debts were cancelled every seven years. Imagine that 2023, imagine that Jeremy Hunt, if he's still Chancellor in two weeks' time, when he's meant to be giving his ne the next update, imagine if he got up and said, okay, never mind what Kwasi Kwarteng tried to do and Liz Truss tried to do, how about this for a radical idea? Next year is going to be the year of cancelling debts. There'll be no debts. All that student loan gone, all that credit card debt gone, all mortgages paid off, done. Imagine what the markets would do. It would be a complete, absolute chaos. It would never happen. That's what the Lord said his how his people were to, li to live. Uh, imagine that in our context. In the UK, the latest figures I could find are for July this year. Uh, the average adult has nearly £4,000 in unsecured debt. Now, of course, averages are always a bit deceiving. That means that lots of people have no unsecured debt, and there's lots of people who have huge unsecured debt. But the average adult has £4,000 of unsecured debt they're carrying with them. 311 people go bankrupt every day in England and Wales. And in total, we're paying £132 million in interest every day. And, of course, that amount is going up as the interest rates increase. Now, those debts are not about to be wiped out. Jeremy Hunt is not able to stand up and say, next year all those debts get sorted. It's just impossible. But we need to fight debt. We do. Sometimes debt can be appropriate. We have a debt on this building. We've got a much bigger debt on our building at Alder Road. We've got a mortgage. Lots of us in this room have mortgages on our houses. That's necessary. It's good. But we still need to fight debt. The thing about debt, especially unsecured debt, especially high-interest-paying credit card debt, is that it keeps the poor poor. It's indebtedness which keeps the poor poor. And we have to fight debt. That means we need to fight it personally. If you're carrying significant, unsecured, interest-bearing debt, and every month you're having to try and make the payments and you're struggling to do so, you've got to find help. And it can be very shameful. To, it's not the kind of thing we want to admit. But you need to ask for help if you haven't. We, we, can, we can point you. Come and talk to Richard. Come and talk to myself. We can point you in some directions which will help you. We, we want to help you to fight debt because personal debt like that is crippling. Puts you into a position of slavery. And corporately, also, we want to fight debt. So we've taken out a loan for this building. We've taken out a mortgage for Alder Road. But we don't have to wait until the full length of years of the term is complete. We, we can. We should. Why not? Let's pay it off sooner. Let's be generous and pay it off sooner. Let's fight debt. Second thing, the second principle we can see from this instruction is that there is no need for poverty. Deuteronomy 15, verse 4. There need be no poor people among you. There need be no poor people. This was God's promise to his people that there was sufficient. The land they were entering in, there was sufficient resource in the land to mean that nobody needed to be poor. And that's still true in our world today. Even in our, with the growing population and everything else, there is enough resource on the earth for no one to need to be poor. There just is. There's sufficient resource for everyone. By God's grace, there's sufficient resource in the earth for everybody to have sufficient. And that means that poverty is a justice issue because nobody should be poor. And so we should be engaged in the fight against poverty. And those who fight against poverty are engaged in a good fight. 
Now, the mechanics of how to fight that fight get very complicated. It is a massive issue. But we can see there's an application for us in the church that we want to fight poverty in the church, that we don't want church members to be stuck in poverty. And the churches that we partner with around the world, we don't want them to be defined by poverty. We want to help them out of poverty. 2 Corinthians 8.13, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. You see this in the example of the early church, first church in Acts, the richer help those who are poorer. It's why a lot of our giving does get funneled in the end to brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where there is real material lack. We don't want the people of God stuck in poverty because there's no need in terms of what God has provided in the earth's resources for anybody to be in poverty. But a third principle we see is that there will always be poor people. There will always be poor people. Deuteronomy 15 verse 4, there need be no poor. Verse 11, there will always be poor people. That's the reality of our world. Might seem contradictory. The scripture in a few verses says there need be no, more, no poor people. A couple of verses later it says there will always be poor people. It's just been realistic. Scripture is being honest. Now, why is it that there will always be poor people? There's probably three main big categories why there are always poor people. One is personal decisions. They have to recognize this, that sometimes people end up in poverty because of poor decisions that they have made. Another reason, perhaps a bigger reason, is because of stuff that happens to people. That all the structures of inequality and corruption, so much of the world where there is real poverty, it's a consequence of corruption, inequality. That's why people are poor. It's not because of anything they've done, it's because of what's been done to them. That's why it's a justice issue. And then there's a third category, which is a bit more difficult to wrestle with, and it's not really the right word for church, but you know what I mean. It's luck. That some people just seem to be, some people just seem to be able to make money appear, and other people never seem to have enough. They're just how it is. It's one of those strange things in life. And one of the interesting things about this teaching in Deuteronomy 15 is that when God instructs his people about the cancelling of debts and about the need to be generous to those who are in need... There's no commentary, there's no judgment made about why people might fall into poverty. There's, there's no line drawn between what some people would describe as the deserving poor who deserve our help and the undeserving poor who don't deserve our help. That line isn't drawn here in Deuteronomy 15. There's no blame pointing. There's simply a statement of facts and then the Lord gives his people an instruction about how they are to respond in the light of those facts. First fact, verse... For there need be no poor. Second fact, verse 11, there will always be poor people. So, thirdly, what are you to do? Therefore, says God, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So see the strength that I command you, says God. I command you. There's, there's, there's no dissection here of economics, no working out why there are poor people, no saying, well, it's because of what they've done or because of what somebody else has done to them. No, it's if there are poor people in your land, I command you to be generous and open-handed towards them. And then when we turn to the New Testament, back to our passages in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's exactly the kind of attitude that we see the Apostle Paul urging the Corinthians towards and using the Macedonians as an example of. That the Macedonians are open-handed towards the poor, even in the midst of their own poverty. And 
something we need to see is that the church is never going to be finished in this task. Never going to be finished with remembering the poor. Until the Lord returns, we are to remember the poor. Until the Lord returns, there need be no poor, but the poor will always be with you. What do you do? You're generous towards the poor. That's the Lord's instruction. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You've got a poverty mindset, you're going to reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously, got a Macedonian mindset, will also reap generously. Think about that imagery. Go out to sow seeds, put your hand in a bag of seeds. It does absolutely no good if you hold on to it. It only does good if you throw it away. And there's almost a kind of a recklessness about that. Think about the, 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 the parable of Jesus, the story Jesus told about the seed. The sower going out to sow seeds. And where does it land? Well, most of it doesn't land where it's even going to grow. Some of it lands in the rocky place. Some of it lands in the weedy place. Some of it gets snatched away by birds. Some of it finds good soil and grows and bears a multiplied return. And what we're instructed here in 2 Corinthians 9 is that we're not to hold on. If you hold on to the seat, that poverty mindset, all that results in is further poverty. Instead, you have to do the courageous, faithful thing, the Macedonian thing of throwing the seed and trusting, trusting that whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Gateway Church, let's be a church that continues, increases in sowing generously. Let's, let's not allow ourselves to fall in, slip into a poverty mindset. Let's, let's not look at the world through a, a lens of lack. Let's look at the world through a, this is all my father's. It's all my father's. And so we can take whatever seed God has entrusted to us, and we can throw it out, trusting that he will cause it to bear a crop. Let's pray. Why don't you stand with me as the band come back? Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you that you are a good father, and it is all our good fathers. And so I pray for us. So I pray for those here this morning who are struggling financially. I pray for those here this morning who are carrying debt and don't know how to sort it out. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a body together to help one another, serve one another in these things. I pray that yeah, we'd be a community of people where we see those in need lifted up. And Jesus, that you'd help us to be a conduit of your grace. I pray that that flow of grace and provision would be enlarged. You'd, you'd widen the pipes of grace and generosity amongst us. That we'd be increasingly a blessing to others. So thank you for those we are able to help brothers and sisters around the world. Just as Paul wanted this offering to go from Corinth to Jerusalem. Thank you we're able to bless others in other parts of the world, other settings who need our help. And I ask, ask that we would be increasingly faithful, increasingly trusting in you. Lord, I pray that we would defy the current narrative of the world, which would say, hold on, hold on. And instead, with simple, straightforward faith, we'd open our hearts and open our hands to receive from you and to bless others. Help us in this, I pray, King Jesus. Amen.